Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Lily Cameron, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> no problem. I guess we should mention that we're neighbors. Yes. My uh, wife is also here. She's uh, going to not talk, I think. She's just here to listen. I, you're the 205th episode. My wife has participated in one because it was our son, and this is the first time she's come to the basement to actually listen real time. Second time. She's telling me second time. Oh, that's right. There was one other. Who was it? Dimitri. Oh, that's right. She was part of uh, Dimitri Drujinsky's. But we're very happy to have you here, and uh, I can't wait to hear your story. Well, I'm so excited to be here, and Lisa's a really good friend of mine, and she's been very, very supportive of everything that I've been doing, so I'm really excited that she's here, too, so I'm less nervous, and I'll talk more. And you can look at her if it makes you feel more comfortable. Okay, I might do that. (laughs) Very cool. So typically, I start at the beginning, and so where were you born? So I was born in Tehran, Iran, in 1979. So you are a lot younger than I am. Am I? Yeah, maybe. I thought we were kind of around the same. <laughs> in, in 1979, uh, the Shah was in charge of the country, right? Yes, that's correct. And w- how would you describe the Shah's government back then? Um, and I know so, you were a baby. Yeah, I was a baby, so I didn't really know. But the stories that I've heard was that the um, Shah was much more liberal. And so he allowed women to walk around without the headscarves. Um, he allowed them to choose whether or not they wanted to wear a headscarf. He was very uh, pro-American, so he wanted to bring like the Western culture to um, Iran, and he believed in women having an education and having jobs, even jobs in the government. So um, he was very like pro-modernization, um, if you will. Yeah, and uh, the the government that then ended up taking over when you were a baby yeah. was essentially the, the complete opposite. Yes. Yeah, so that was um, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, and it was the Islamic Revolution. So they basically hijacked the religion, and in the name of the religion, they um, took over the country, and they said that women have to wear headscarves. They said that all these different things are mandated. Um, And it's really, you know, they really gave a bad name to the Muslim religion and the Islamic, and uh, by calling it like the Islamic Revolution. And they took Islam, which is normally a very peaceful religion, and they made it into something that it completely is not. Um, and so they came and they overthrew the government. And my dad worked for the Shah. So me and my whole family were in danger for our lives. So we had to escape from Iran. Because you were telling me before we were today that uh, you were fearful that you would lose your life. You, you yeah. actually weren't fearful because you were a baby, but right. your parents were certainly fearful for uh, you and your sister. Exactly. Yeah. They were going to kill my mom and my dad and me and my sister, even though we were just babies. Why, why would the they kill you? Well, because my dad worked for the Shah, so they tried to get rid of anybody that worked for the Shah's Any connection to the Shah? Any connection. Yeah. That, so, that like, seems re- crazy. Yeah. Well, they wanted to make sure that all the Shah's supporters left the country or were killed or arrested so that none of them could band together to rise back up and take the the country back. So I've forgotten the history. How did they actually pull off a takeover of the government? It wasn't a military takeover, was it? 
Well, now you're you're stretching my brain a little bit. I don't remember exactly all the details. <laughs> well, you details. don't remember because you were yeah. You're I don't remember, and I don't. Um, I should know the stories, the history better. I should know it better, but, but I don't know, um, like how they did it. Like, I don't. I don't think it was military, but it was definitely by force. They had people with guns, but it. I don't believe it was the military. My husband actually knows this stuff a little bit better than me. <laughs> I, I, my recollection is they had people that were in the government that were friendly to the cause of the Islamic Re- Revolution, which helped. Uh, and then I think, yeah, they they'd certainly had weapons. And so it felt maybe it wasn't military necessarily, but it was certainly uh, by force. Oh. I, that's interesting you say that because I didn't know if there were like insiders in the government already that helped or not. Like I've I've never heard that before. But my recollection is that there were some, okay. but I don't know that it was important for yeah. them to be able to do the takeover. Yeah, but it's been like that since 1980, right? The government is still essentially the same as it was back in the 80s. Yeah, there was a time where we had um, where they had someone else that was trying to run for president of Iran and they called it I believe the Green Revolution and the um, the people of Iran thought that things were going to change and the government was going to allow or be less restrictive but then that they squashed that person and um, they really held a tight regime. I mean, some of my family members say it's a little bit better now than it was in the eighties. Um, but currently right now, and I don't know if you were going to get this in your questioning, but right now it's pretty horrible with, um, I don't know if you heard there was a young woman, um, named Massa Amini that, um, had her headscarf it wasn't tightly wrapped and and some of her hair was showing and uh they ended up killing her and so now there's protests going on since that day and it's it's been many many months and they've killed or arrested thousands of young women and young men that are protesting in support that's still Um, happening that's still happening to this day and um I actually, I should have called my uncle and just gotten an update on the news in Iran um, today because he he posts about it a lot. Um, I I sometimes try not to watch it because it's just upsetting, um, and it's also not something that's broadcasted here, so you can't really see it on CNN or Fox or any of the regular news channels. Why not? That's a great question, and that's actually like my mom and uncle have talked about that a lot, and they're very upset that that's not more um, prevalent in today's news because so many so many young people are protesting for freedom and and they're just being killed and we do have um, some protests and support that are happening in the United States there was one last week in Washington DC the VCU students at the Persian um, they have a Persian club at VCU and they did a protest um, uh, I think in the beginning of March and so there are these little protests here and there um, which can get bigger and and more well known in the uh, Iranian community but it's not that information is not getting to the general public and there um, there has been a lot of um, frustration about that on the part of Iranians that why isn't this information out there why isn't it being why aren't people hearing the voices of these young people in Iran that they want things to change they want to have choice in the matter whether they tightly wrap their headscarf whether they loosely wrap their headscarf whether they wear long sleeve um, shirts or maybe they have their shirts a little bit shorter Um, you know they want to have freedom they want to have choice Um, and it's it's really just so upsetting to hear the stories of what's going on in there 
I don't know if you heard, there was an amazing song written. Um, I wish I remembered the name. I think it was Shervine. I don't know. I will, I will, um, uh, I believe it was Shervine. I don't remember his last name, but the song is called Baraya and it means for the people. And he literally sang a song for the young people that want freedom, for, um, everybody in this country that wants everybody to get along for all the people suffering in Iran right now, for all the Afghans suffering in Afghanistan. And the very fact that he sang this song, as soon as he released it, he got arrested. It's unbelievable. It's It's just a song. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been like the rallying cry for this. I don't know if people are calling it a revolution right now, but that's been the rallying cry for what's going on right now in Iran. And, um, and he just won a Grammy for the song. <laughs> as as he should. Could, well, it's yeah. a, I haven't heard the song. I've heard it's good. I've also, yeah. also the bravery that it takes to yes. release a song yeah. like that. And I believe, um, I really should have researched this before I came, <laughs> but either Time Magazine or National, probably Time Magazine that names the person of the year. Um, they named Iranian women as the person of the, as the person of the year about with their bravery and and just standing up for their own rights and their right to freedom. So at least Time Magazine is paying attention. Yes. Uh, 15, 20 years ago in this country, it would have been a massive story and it would stay top of mind and it would have been talked about yeah. by journalists. I I fear that journalism is not really uh, a thing that's important these days yeah. to our culture yeah. and it absolutely should be because journalists are just fact finders and fact sharers right. and that's an important set of facts that we should be following as freedom loving Americans we, we would love exactly. the world to enjoy the freedoms we take for granted oh absolutely absolutely I mean I definitely we can go on a whole spiel about journalists journalism and uh, journalists today I think a lot of it is opinion driven and they want to share their opinion and put their opinions out there but yeah the facts need to be shared and um, there are a lot of struggles going on right now with the Iranian people, especially the younger generation. They want things to change. They want to have some freedoms. They want to be able to get an education and make a difference in the world and just have the freedom to do that. Yeah. It's what anybody would want. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So back to when you were a baby, you obviously don't want to stay there because it it meant arrest or death. Right. Uh, And you obviously live here now. Tell me about how your family got out of Iran. Yeah, so my my dad escaped first because he was um, eminently in danger of being killed. And then my mom um, left with me and my sister. My sister was only a year and a half at the time, and I was about three months old. And so here she's like a young mom, like 26, 27 years old. And and then she flew all the way here and came to America. my family is uh, very fortunate in the fact that my dad had actually always wanted to go to America. So when he was younger, he actually came to America. He was the first of his whole entire family that came to America, and he went to school here. And so when the revolution happened, a lot of people escaped to Germany, England, like European countries closer to Iran. Um, but, but my dad said, no, we're going to America. And then the other fortunate thing was that my mom's family um, was very smart about wanting her to learn English. So she actually, when she was young, she went to um, her 
college um, in England. So she was able to learn English there. So when, when they came here, they didn't have that added challenge of not knowing the language, which was a huge benefit for them because they had so many other challenges. You know, when they escaped, they couldn't take anything with them besides, you know, me and my sister. So they, it's so sad listening to them recount the stories of, you know, they couldn't even tell their moms that they were leaving or oh. where they were going. Oh, that's unbelievable. It is. It's so incredibly sad. And, and once they escaped, they, they, my mom said that she thought that at some point she'd be able to go back. And unfortunately, they didn't get to go back within, you know, the, the years after that both of their moms ended up dying. Yeah. And so they never saw their moms again. And it's um, super heartbreaking to hear when they're just talking about, they, you know, they, di- they didn't like to talk about having an escape because, you know, they left everything they knew. They had worked hard. They, they you know, both had jobs. They had good money. They had a, a lot of friends, a ton of family. And then they just had to up and leave everything. They came here. They had $8. That's it. And so my dad had a friend that um, helped a little bit and got us. Uh, I believe he helped get us an apartment or something. And then and then they just started working. You know, my dad worked three jobs and um, my mom would take care of me and my sister all day long. Then she would make dinner for my dad. Then um, after dinner, she'd put everything away, clean everything up, put us to bed. And then she would leave and go to work from 10 o'clock at night until five in the morning. And she would work and then she'd come back at five and then she'd make breakfast for my dad so he could go off to work and then she'd get us up and get us ready. I I honestly don't even know when my mom ever slept. So she was taking 20 minute cat naps, it sounds like. I I don't, I don't, I don't know when she slept because she must have been taking some cat naps somewhere because, you know, it was, I mean, it was so much work. And then I remember, I do remember when we were a little bit older, we'd go with my dad to work on Sundays and we'd go pick um, berries for this, this lady had a berry farm or like fruit trees and we'd go, we wouldn't really help him because we were young, but we'd go be with him so that my mom would be at work on Sundays. And then we would be with my dad while he was working and picking berries and fruits off the trees. And your dad was a government official for a while. Oh yeah, he was actually the the Shah's wife, the queen's right-hand man. So he um, would always help arrange like any of the foreign guests that would come. He would be like the queen's assistant. So he had a very, very... Um, he was in the inner circle. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you're talking about picking berries earlier. You guys moved to, to Maryland effectively. We did. I say yeah. moved like it was just you, you right. planned it and <laughs> packed everything up, but you didn't pack anything. You just no. you desperately went somewhere else and, that, and exactly. you had family that was uh in maryland no we didn't have any family my dad had just that one friend that uh apparently we were going to be going to texas this is uh what my mom had told me we were going to be going to texas because that's where my dad went i think he went to texas a&m or i don't know some school in texas he went to and then um so but his friend said stop in maryland first and we'll talk and let's see what we can do and then i think the friend was able to help get the first apartment and then we st- ended up staying in Maryland. How, how uh, long was your dad separated from uh, your mom and your sister? I think we just came like um, a few months after he came. Right, yeah. but he he went to Turkey initially. Yeah, I believe he like walked through Turkey to come and get to um, to come and get on a plane and get to America because there was no really good way that he could just fly out of Iran right. because they had flagged him as being a person that they wanted to kill. 
He was the queen's right hand person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did he love the queen? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. He, my parents both loved the queen. I believe the queen came to their wedding. I think I remember them saying that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's really awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. All right, cool. So when you were a kid and you started to uh, understand the world, at least like a kid would, like when you were yeah. seven, eight, nine years old, what did you want to do when you when you grew up? Do you have any idea? Yeah, so um, I think when I was like nine years old, you know, for seeing my parents just work and work and work all the time and they always talked about getting an education they said the number one reason well the number two the number one reason was so we didn't get killed but the number two (laughs) reason they brought us to this country is because they wanted me and my sister to get an education so that was the most important thing um so i think when i was about nine years old i decided i wanted to become a doctor at nine Mm -hmm, yeah what was it about being a doctor i just wanted to help people Yeah, I wanted to help people, and then I was fascinated with the brain and how the brain worked, and so then um, I thought about becoming a neurologist, but then I was like, you know, I want to do something more hands-on, and so then um, we had a family friend that was a neurosurgeon, and he was telling me about neurosurgery, so then I was like, oh, that sounds good, so then when I was was nine, I said, okay, I want to be a neurosurgeon. (laughs) It's one of the uh, harder disciplines for a medical doctor, right? Oh, yes, it is, absolutely. Did you know that when you were nine? I didn't really think about how hard it was because at that point, like, I saw my parents that had struggled and left everything they knew behind. So at that point, nothing is really hard. You're like, oh, yeah, that's a great point. If you're throwing back to that, you're like, anything's possible. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. uh, I mean, I'm sure they didn't plan. Obviously, they didn't plan it. But to have that example from your parents, your entire childhood, it had to be extremely powerful. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it was like, they didn't have to tell us you have to work hard. We just saw them working hard. I mean, after school, the bus would drop us off at my mom's work. She worked at a bakery once we started going to school. And we would just sit there and do our homework while she worked at the bakery. And then we'd all go home at six o'clock. And so that was just, you know, we always saw our parents working every every moment all the time so were you uh when you were in school were you super academic Mm -hmm. or were you very academic and you had other interests as well um i would say i was super academic i loved studying i loved just learning and just you know just being so grateful for the opportunity to go to school and just being like grateful that i get to learn all this stuff yeah, that's awesome. So, yeah. Were you a math and science kind of kid? Primarily? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. Did, did you feel like uh, when you were younger that you were accepted by other kids? Um, so I think that I would say I was so focused on my um, studying and so focused on like what I was learning and what my goals were that I didn't really pay too much attention to the fact that Everyone else kind of saw us as outsiders. Um, You know, my sister talks about this a lot because she was more aware of how other people were perceiving us. Um, We were the only ethnic kids in the school that we were going to. Um, And so, you know, she says people used to make fun of us. I don't believe it. I don't (laughs) think they made fun of us. But you were so heads down, you you really don't know. Yeah, I didn't really pay attention. I mean, anything... Anything that happened, like, to me was so insignificant because, like, I had a goal and I just needed to study and achieve my goal, so. Yeah, it's great to have that sort of focus. And so you ended up treating the uh, trivial, the the, uh, level of concern that you needed to give it, which is zero. Yeah. Well, I will say, I mean, there were times that, like, 
you know, I do remember like the kids would spin my hair on the bus. It stopped for some reason. Oh. Well, good. Maybe I won't share that part. No, no you're good. <laughs> Go ahead. Mm. So, like, I do remember, like, sometimes kids would spit in my hair on the bus, and um, they would, like, say things. And so I would always just go tell my mom, and um, my mom would just say, like, you're you're beautiful, you're wonderful, you're amazing, just ignore them. And then, and she sometimes would call the principal and let the principal know. As that she should. Kids, kids should be doing right. that to other kids. Exactly. They shouldn't. And I will tell you, they are still doing it today. To a lot of the refugee families that I work with, a lot of those kids are getting bullied because they can't speak English. And that, that is because the kids are a combination of super immature and not getting good uh, guidance from their parents, I imagine. Yeah, I guess so. I guess. I don't, I don't, I don't know, know what else explains it. I don't know. But I, I mean, you know, I think bullying is a problem in general for all kids. You know, I mean, it's not, um, it's not something that only like... Um, ethnic people experience i mean everyone experiences bullying in different aspects at least i mean i guess so i don't know <laughs> um yeah I, I i would love to uh find bullies and and make sure they don't bully anymore yeah yeah it, it it's uh maddening it's almost like they're covering for their insecurity somehow yeah but they they're not old enough to understand why they're doing it exactly yeah exactly. but it gives them attention yeah Negative attention, but still attention, I guess. All right, so super academic. Did you have any interest outside of uh, going to class and studying? Um, Well, I would say, like, we probably, we were in Key Club, which is a service organization. (laughs) So that was, like, our one thing that we did outside of school. Um, And then when we were in middle school, our parents did put us in Farsi class so we can learn how to read and write Farsi. Did you speak it in the house at all? We didn't. My mom was very adamant that she wanted us to learn English and not have um, heavy accents and not have to worry about trying to learn Farsi first and then learn English. She wanted us to be very assimilated into this country and... And um, she didn't want us to feel like outsiders. Yeah. I mean, that's that's probably the way to go, right? Yeah, exactly. But you also want to be true to where you came from, too. And so right. learning Farsi is pretty cool. But it's hard to maintain Farsi if you're not speaking it all the exactly. time. Exactly. Yeah. I would say... Um, you know, my parents would talk Farsi in the house a little bit, like if they didn't want my sister and I to know something, like if they were telling where our Christmas presents were or something, um, they would speak Farsi in the house. But then... Um, But then growing up, when we went to college was when we met a lot of other Persian friends. And then so we did speak Farsi a little bit with them. And then um, as years went on, I would just speak Farsi when I called my aunts and uncles in Iran and around the world. Um, And then less and less, I would speak it. So then um, last year when I started working with Afghan refugees, they speak Dari, which is similar to Farsi, um, but it's a little different. It's very hard for me to understand them, but it's easier for them to understand me. Farsi is more formal version of Dari. Mm-hmm. So I would say like at the point where I m- started meeting all them, my Farsi wasn't good at all. But it's gotten much better in the past <laughs> eight months here. <laughs> kind of has to, right? It has to, yeah. Yeah, do you want to talk about that now? Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, uh, so how did you get involved in helping uh, Afghani refugees? Yeah, so um, what happened was it was April of last year. My friend Tom Lynch, who's a pastor of First Baptist Church of Ashland, um, he's one of the pastors there. He uh, asked me if I wanted to help lead the church's response to refugees. 
So I said, yeah, that sounds good. And so he connected me with this organization called Reestablish Richmond, who is an organization in Richmond that are that's helping to um, that's helping refugees that come from all over the world. And so I started doing some work with them. Um, and then we started getting more church um, people involved in that. So then together, like one of the things we did last July, which was really awesome, Reestablish Richmond has this program where they bring in artists to teach the young people how to express what they're going through through art. So they pick these, they call Narratio Fellows, and they have them, um, they select several of them to come and then they get to have art supplies and this uh, time with the art teacher and their art actually gets displayed and it helps them just express what they're going through as being refugees. Because, you know, for me, my husband always makes a point of this. For me, as a baby, it wasn't really hard for me to be a refugee because I don't remember anything. My parents did all the struggling. But for the teenagers that are coming, that's really hard because they know what's going on. They know what they're leaving. They are leaving their friends. They're leaving their home. And they also have no say in the matter. Their parents don't have that much say, but at least the parents can say, like, which state we're going to go to. Or, you know, at least the parents have a little bit more um, control over um, what's happening, where the teenagers, they don't have any control. And then, you know, some of the parents, like the, the moms especially, could potentially come here and stay at home and not necessarily go into the workforce right away. Even some of the um, dads will stay at home and maybe start taking English classes and learn. But the, the because education is so important in this country, all of these kids, the first thing that any resettlement organization does is enroll the kids in school. So you think about this teenager, like even the little kids or, um, you know, 10 and 12 year olds leaving everything they know, not understanding the politics of it all, not understanding why that's happening, and then being plopped into like middle school in mm-hmm. Hanover County. And they're, and like, look, they're, they're teenagers. Their brains are right. not fully formed. Their, their right. Puberty is doing all kinds of wacky things to them. And they're plopped into the Hanover County. Right. You, like, if you said, hey, uh, pick the opposite of growing up in Afghanistan. You might say Hanover <laughs> County, Virginia. <laughs> True that, yeah. Um, and so it's it's so it's such a challenge for them because um, they don't speak any English, and then they have to go to like calculus. And the, it's a challenge for the teachers as well. Like I know some of the teachers in Henrico County that teach to a lot of refugee kids, and they're like, I'm teaching, and I know they don't understand what I'm saying, but I'm supposed to teach calculus, or I'm supposed to teach algebra, or I'm supposed to teach world history. And so they just kind of have to muddle through until they learn English. Then they are the quickest ones to learn English because they're young, but they're also immersed in it. Then they end up having to translate everything for their parents all the time, Mm. which that makes another challenge. It makes it hard because, you know, when their parents are trying to struggle with like social services and getting food stamps or, um, you know, filling out forms and and then you're asking an eight year old to translate all that. That's a lot for an eight year old. um, It's it's. Forget helping your parents. All the rest of it is a ton for the exactly. eight-year-old, and then you're then you're asked to do that, and, exactly. and you're parenting in mm-hmm. in a in a way. Exactly. Yeah. So so I started doing the um, work with Reestablish Richmond with some of the church volunteers. So we so the Naratio fellows that do the art class they ask for different churches and different organizations to bring food for them, and so that was really awesome. Um, 
because a lot of them were from Afghanistan, I know I know that they eat um, what's called halal meat, which is uh, basically meat that the animal is blessed and killed in a humane way. Mm. That's all that that means. And so they're very particular about that. But I also wanted to make sure that they got a chance to experience American food. So a friend of mine owns the Chard Restaurant in Hanover. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he's from Afghanistan himself. Oh, really? Yeah, so he came here in, in the late 70s as well. So I talked to him and we brainstormed, and he said that he will supply hamburgers made with halal meat for all of these kids that were in the art class. How do you find halal meat? I don't know. He has a restaurant, so he has I, a dealer. I, I guess he has I, a halal meat dealer. I, I, I guess if anybody's going to figure out it's a restaurant yeah. owner. Yeah. Yeah. So he figured it out, and he got it, and he made the burgers, donated to us so that we from the church could take it over to the um, to the kids. And it was just amazing. The kids were so grateful. The reestablished Richmond was so happy that we provided lunch that day. And it was such a re- rewarding experience for our volunteers as well. I took my kids with us, and um, they enjoyed it as well uh do you think our government is helping at all uh, yeah so the, the government is helping it's it's in different ways that the government's helping um so in richmond there's two resettlement organizations that i know about this irc which is international rescue committee and um commonwealth catholic charity ccc mm. okay so they receive government funding um and then they help resettle some of these refugees that come um so sometimes, like the IRC, for example, will pay for three months' rent for a family. Well, if you think about it, three months is not long enough for anybody to get on their feet. But, you know, we have to take what we can get. They've ended up having a cutback. We have a family right now that I'm hoping they'll pay a month rent, but so far it's just been like they'll pay for the first 10 days and then we have to figure it out um, for that family. But I'm hoping they will pay another month or two. Um, because that family hasn't gotten a job yet. But anyways, they have some restrictions because they have government funding. So one of the restrictions that makes it very, very interesting and challenging is because it's government funding, you're not allowed to put more than two people to a bedroom. So then you think about a family of seven. Why Why does the government have that restriction? Is there any logic to it? I don't know. No, I don't don't know the government's rules, (laughs) like why the government decides that. I mean, I think they... I think probably some at somewhere along the lines they didn't want to have like eight people in a one bedroom house, so they want it to be something that they can man like that that's livable conditions. You know, I have friends that grew up uh, eight people to a room. Yeah, this is so true. My husband grew up like that too. Well, not eight people, but like he grew up with um, his three siblings and all in one room. Yeah. So yeah, it does happen exactly. So with the government restrictions, they they can only place people in um, like two to a room. So then you have a family of seven that gets placed in a four bedroom house and the rent is 2,300 a month. Doesn't make any sense. How are they gonna afford that? They can't. You know, it's it's literally impossible. So that's uh, a lot of what I help with. Um, and the way that kind of evolved was, you know, we did the work with Reestablished Richmond last summer and then um, I started talking to my friends about it and telling them, you know, like, we're starting to do work with refugees and 
uh, one of my friends had a master's in teaching English as a second language. Mm. And so she was like, oh, that's cool. I can come help teach English. And I was like, oh, that's great. Let's talk to reestablish Richmond. And at that time, their model was sending volunteers to, to people's houses. So they sent uh, anybody who signed up to volunteer with reestablish Richmond, they would pair them up with a family. The volunteer would go to the house and teach English like one on one. So I said, well, I have this person that could teach a class. And they said, we weren't, they weren't ready at that time to do that. Um, but they said, you can do it through your church. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. So I talked to Tom and he said, yeah, let's go ahead. This is something that the church had been praying about for years about doing something to reach refugee families. Um, so then we went ahead and um just started the english class last october and uh i will say we were a little bit flying blind <laughs> um i've never ran an english class before but um so we started it and i made a google form a flyer put it in spanish and in farsi and in english circulated it to some people i knew and to like social services and hanover county public schools esl coordinators and then didn't really get anybody registered within a day or two. And I'm not, I would say like, I'm a patient person, but like when I didn't get anybody registered in two days, I was getting a little worried because we were going to start the class like two weeks later and I needed to know how many people we needed. So then it was such a God moment that I was driving in September for my daughter's birthday to Party City to get balloons. And I remembered that somebody said there's an Afghan grocery store called Cobble Mart. Mm. And so I was at a stoplight and I did get on my phone. I shouldn't admit this, but I got on my phone, but I was, it was a red light. And I actually, I, I didn't get on my phone. I used Siri. So I used Siri and I said, where's Cobble Mart? And it said, turn right here. You have arrived. And I was like, what? The Cobble Mart was right next to the party city. You had no idea. I had no idea. So I went in there and I happened to have a flyer with me. I walked in and I said, I have this. I'm giving, um, we're doing this class in Ashland. Can we put the flyer up? And so the one guy started talking to the other guy. And then they started talking in Dari. And they're like, huh, there's an English class and a church in Ashland. Where's Ashland? Is this going to even be a good class or not? So I let them talk for a few minutes. And then I went ahead and spoke up in Farsi. And I said, oh, yes, this is a very good class. <laughs> and their jaws dropped to the floor. And they were like, you speak Farsi? And I was like, yes, I speak Farsi. I'm Iranian. And they're like, you're running this class? And I said, yep. Within like two hours, my class was full. So within two hours, we already had 10 people registered. Um, we, so we, we had uh, three Hispanic um, people from the Ashland area, and then we had um, the 10 Afghans that just registered immediately, like within hours of me going there. And, um, and so that's how we started. So we started with doing the English class once a week on Thursday mornings. We, um, you know... We asked some of the church members to volunteer to help with driving and childcare because we realized, you know, a lot of them, they don't have cars. And how are they going to get from Henrico to Hanover right. to Ashland nonetheless? And so, uh, and then childcare was a big problem because the husbands a lot of times are at work. So the wife is at home with like the littlest kid. So we asked some church volunteers. Then we needed some more church volunteers. So um, my husband's family goes to Ashland Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. And we, we um, go there sometimes as well and so i said well let me go talk to them and see if they want to join too so 
they were very excited about it too. So it's, it has been like one of the most beautiful things that I've ever experienced to see volunteers from Ashland Christian Church come with volunteers at First Baptist and together going and picking up these family members, bringing them to the English class, watching their kids, helping in the English class. It has absolutely been amazing. And uh, I don't know, there's a word that I'm, I keep trying to remember. I always say it wrong, but it's like econumerical or I don't know if you know what word I'm saying, but it means that when other churches from different denominations come together, yep. ecumenical, I think it's ecumenical. There you go. Yeah. So um, it's been such an ecumenical experience. <laughs> there you go. You learn a new vocabulary word, you're supposed to use it in a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So, yeah. So then, um, so we ran our class. We did like a six-week pilot program from October until end of November. And the, the students loved it. The volunteers loved it. I loved it. It was amazing. And so we said, okay, we need to keep this going. Um, unfortunately, my friend that had the master's with teaching English for second language, her husband's business got really busy. So she wasn't able to teach anymore. But we knew we had to keep it going. So I said, okay, well, let me just get another hat. And now I'm going to start teaching the class in the spring. So uh, now I did enlist Tom's help. I said, okay, this is getting a lot. So um, Tom and I co-teach the class now. And so it's a little bit of a different format. We decided the six-week pilot was too structured. What these people really need is conversation and community and love. So um, when we when we stopped the class in November, then um, we just before we started back up, we started the class. Um, let's see, I think we started end of February. So we had that break from November to February, and that's when a lot of the real work began. Um, we first realized one of the students had come to us, and he said, "Why are this was in October? Why are people putting?" Uh, skeletons on their doors. Why are people putting pumpkins? What is going on? So we said, oh, okay, they need to learn about Halloween. So we explained Halloween to them. We invited some of the families to come to like a trunk or treat that we had at First Baptist Church of Ashland. And that was amazing. The kids, they were so excited to just get candy. They were like, what do you mean? We just go there and get candy and this is for us? So that was amazing. So then we're like, okay, we got to tell them about all the holidays. So we decided to have a Thanksgiving feast. Mm. And so we had that at Ashland Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. They hosted it. And the volunteers from there, as well as First Baptist, came over. Together, we had like one of the most amazing Thanksgiving feasts. Like I told my husband the weeks preparing, I said, and I don't know if this is historically accurate. I'm like, this is probably how Pocahontas felt trying to get the <laughs> the uh, Indians and pilgrims together. Although, I mean, I don't know if it was her at that time. <laughs> but, Maybe um, a safer environment. Uh, yes, yes. History is not my strong suit, I will say. But, um, but yeah, so like to get the Afghans, they wanted to share their food. So they wanted to make food for everybody. And then the Americans wanted to share their food, but I was like, you know, they don't eat pork. It's one thing to remember, like put put the pork, put put whatever you need to put in whatever you're making, you know, have the ham. I'm not going to say don't have the ham, but just let's label anything that has pork so that they know not to eat it. Then some of the families are a little bit more strict, so they don't eat anything that's not halal. I will tell you, though, one of the favorite things of the Afghan kids, 
is Chick-fil-A. So <laughs> it's like every other kid. Yes, exactly. Because um, so chicken can be considered halal no matter what. So even Chick-fil-A chicken is considered mm. halal because I guess there's no real humane way to kill a chicken or inhumane it's really all the same like the chicken is killed the way the chicken is killed i don't know i mean i could be also totally wrong because i know there's like you know um grass-fed beef and like you know you can do things and then free-range chickens thank you lisa see i knew it was good that you were here (laughs) um so yeah like the free-range chicken so there are things can be more humane but anyways they love chick-fil-a so i did that was my contribution to thanksgiving (laughs) was a chick-fil-a tray uh because just managing everything else i didn't have time to cook anything um so but they loved thanksgiving and just the warm welcoming they received at Ashland Christian Church and when we opened the doors for them and they came and it was just amazing. Um, And then I will tell you about Christmas because that was another amazing event. But just to keep it in order, one lady called me the day before Thanksgiving, actually two days before Thanksgiving, two days before the Thanksgiving party and said, I want to come to the party, but we have no long sleeve clothes. We have no shirts to wear. We have no nice clothes to wear. Is there any way that you can get us some clothes? And I said, yeah, absolutely. If that's your need, I'll take care of it. And I put it out to our awesome neighborhood and a couple other neighborhoods near here. And within 24 hours, I would say I had over 25 bags of clothes. It was amazing. So then we set it up in a room at Ashland Christian Church. And then we had them come. The fa- when the families finished eating, I said, we have a room here. You can come and get whatever you need. They were so grateful. Uh, and I'll tell you, like, you know, here in America, a lot of times we're like, oh, we don't think other people want our worn clothes or our, they don't want like our old stuff. We, we're clueless. Right. We're completely clueless. Yeah. But um, in in the Middle East, it's one of the highest honors. Mm. If somebody comes to me and says, I like your shirt, I'm supposed to like take it off and give it to them. You know, I mean, luckily, like if I would have something underneath, <laughs> I would take it off, you know. But, um, but then, um, you know, we can, like they were just so honored that some people were wanting to give their own clothes to them. They felt like it was such a high honor and they were so grateful. And it was so good because we needed coats. They they said they didn't have coats. And around Thanksgiving, it was very cold. And um, so th- thank God so many people donated coats. They got coats. And then we walked out of the church and we said, we're taking you to the Ashland Christmas Parade. And they were so excited. Oh my goodness. Now, if you have... If you have been to the Ashland Christmas Parade, so my kids, I take them every year, and sometimes they're like, okay, like, this is great. Can we leave? Um, you know, they're, they, um, they're used to seeing, like, the Macy's Parade on TV. They've never been to the Richmond Parade. But also, they, so they were just like, oh, this is great, but it's just like um, a smaller parade. I particularly think that Ashen Christmas Parade is phenomenal. I love it. And I love the fact that I know so many people in it. Um, but I'm telling you, these are Hispanic families and our Afghan families were so excited. So excited to see a parade. You know, they don't have that in Afghanistan. Not a lot of like parades that. in Afghanistan. No, no. <laughs> definitely not. 
So they were just so excited. They were so happy. They videotaped the whole thing, the in, like entire thing. They sent the video to their family in Afghanistan. They, it was one of the most beautiful moments to just see the joy on their faces about this. And I can't wait to tell them that there's a 4th of July parade. <laughs> <laughs> they will definitely and, and be for that. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so They'll moments like that make all the hard work that you and uh, others have done Absolutely. totally worthwhile. Totally worth it. Um, and so then at Thanksgiving, one of my awesome volunteers, Kara, um, came up to me and said, we really should do something for them for Christmas. And I was like, okay, Kara, <laughs> just take a deep breath. Whatever the, whatever the volunteers say, like it... I feel like it's really like God moving through each and every one of us to help encourage different programs to happen. Um, and so so then we said, okay, let's do an angel tree. Well, by this time, it's like end of November, so a lot of churches already have their angel tree. First Baptist already had a lot of stuff going on with the food pantry. Ashland Christian Church had the angel tree that they were already doing. So I just said, okay, let's do an online angel tree. And so I just figured out how to do it on Sign Up Genius, and it worked. I was, like, blown away. <laughs> I was like, okay, we'll put this out on Facebook to our friends, and we'll put this out to the church members. And the amount of um, gift donations that we received uh, was amazing. I made a list for every family, and I said, tell me what you need. And every single one of them wrote coat, warm clothes, and then for their kids, warm clothes, hats, and gloves. And I said, okay, but what do your kids like? And then they said they like to be warm. <laughs> and I said, well, yes, I know, but we like toys here in America. <laughs> Can you tell us, like, if they ha- if they like Superman, if they- we'll get them the coats, we'll get them the gloves. But tell us if they like um, certain toys and stuff. They said, no, 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 don't worry about that. We just need hats and gloves, coats, and socks. And um, so, of course, my volunteers are amazing, and they got way more than that. So we got purses for the ladies and uh, wallets for the men and lots and lots of toys and books and wonderful, wonderful things. And so um, that was really amazing. And then while I was collecting the gifts, the brand new gifts, a lot of people were like, oh, you're working with refugees. Can I donate clothes? So I said, okay, let's just donate some clothes. Let's donate some clothes. So then we... We had a phenomenal Christmas party at Ashland Christian Church, and um, the volunteers from both churches came, and um, all of our families came, and and they were just blown away. One of the Afghan dads came up to me, and he said that we have been through so much in this past year, and the one thing that we couldn't do, you and your team of volunteers have have been able to do today, and that is to put a smile on our mm. kids' faces. And that was just so amazing. It's heartbreaking for, in some senses, yeah, right? Yeah, it is. It is. But the gratitude that they have for everything you do is just so amazing. Um, and so then we had our families. They got all their Christmas presents and... Um, then we had the donations. We said, you can go through the donated clothes. If there's anything else that you didn't get as a present, you can look through and get. So then they, they got what they needed and then they left. I had all the drivers, um, ready and, and they took them, but I knew we had a lot of clothes donations that came through. And so I said, well, like, let me put an advertisement out there to let, um, local, international people know that this is something that's happening at Ashland Christian Church. So the Christmas party was phenomenal, fantastic that morning. 
Then that afternoon, I had circulated the flyer to like Hanover County, ESL, Hispanic Family Coordinators, Social Services and everything. And I told the volunteers at Ashland Christian Church, I'm like, I don't know who's going to come, how many are going to come. We don't know. We, at the time that I said on the flyer, we opened the doors and we had over 100 local Hispanic families come in need of clothes, toys, and other items. I'm telling you, within 15 minutes, we ran out of stuff. My volunteers were so amazing, immediately went to Walmart. I immediately put it out to our neighborhood. One of our volunteers drove to the neighborhood, picked up the bags that some of the neighbors had ready to go, brought it back. We, we, we wrote down um, some of the names of the families of, of um, specific things that they were in need of. A lot of them had babies and didn't have a crib, um, needed car seats, pack and plays, diapers, wipes, all of this stuff. And so within a couple hours, we got a lot of that stuff. Um, then we, it was just such a beautiful way that we all work together because, um, I just happened to go on Facebook to post that we needed items. And I saw a friend of mine posted, she had a crib. So I immediately messaged her. I said, I have somebody right here, right now that needs a crib. She lives in the, um, Sedgefield trailer community in Ashland. Do you have any ability to deliver it to her? And my friend said, yeah, absolutely. But I don't have a mattress. So I said, okay, no problem. And here, like we are two days before Christmas, right? And um, I was like, this is so many things happening. I hadn't even finished the shopping for my own kids and wrapping for my own family. So I told the volunteers, I was like, I can order a mattress from Target right now, but I don't have any more time left to go pick it up today and deliver it to this family. And one of the volunteers said, no problem. I'll go pick it up. Just tell me how to do the Target pickup order and I'll go get it. Mm. And just that working together within that one day, we got the family a crib and like with a brand new mattress with sheets and everything um and then so out of that event um what we did was the families that didn't get enough stuff we we collected more donations and then i would say probably two or three times from that day including on new year's eve day including like a couple days after New Year's, we opened the doors of Ashland Christian Church for people to come and get more more stuff. Mm. As stuff came in, we would just let the people that came that first day, we'd let them know just so that everybody would get something. We did run out of a lot of toys. Um, those are always one of the first things to go, uh, especially around Christmas time. But um, so then that kind of birthed the clothing closet at Ashland Christian Church. So then we decided, we all got together and talked about it um, at Ashland Christian Church and said, you know, they they were ready to do a ministry. And we knew we had the English class over at First Baptist. So we said, why don't we do like a clothing closet here where once a month we will collect donations and once a month we'll open the doors to the will to anybody anybody in need but mostly we're gearing it towards the international community in terms of our flyers and our advertising so i always put my flyer in three different languages and i always circulate it to like the esl coordinators and other um like family needs navigators for the hispanic community and then we've actually opened it up and circulated the flyer to the resettlement organizations the ccc and irc so that the brand new refugees can come and get stuff too and so we started it and now we call it the disciples depot mm -hmm. so it's on the third saturday of every month 
over at Ashton Christian Church. I have an amazing group of volunteers that on Friday they come and they set out all the clothes, toys, kitchen items, donations. And Saturday we open the doors. So this past Saturday we opened the doors and we had over 180 people come. My goodness. Yeah, 180 people come and get stuff that they need. So we did run out of toys. We Everybody got the toys that they needed, so we don't have any more toys for the next time. So I shouldn't say we ran out. A lot of the kids got toys. Um, and then, uh, so we're collecting more donated toys. Kids' clothes are always a big thing that is in need because, um, you know, with them, you just have to find the right size. A lot of times we'll give them a piece of clothing that might be bigger than what their kid is right now. We'll, like, take it, save it for later. And they're like, we have no room. You mm-hmm. know, they're in small apartments or they're in trailers. They don't have any room to store this stuff. So um, we advertise at the local Hispanic market in Ashland and then through um you know, the other organizations that I mentioned as well. Um, And it's just been so amazing. And one of the things that I tell the volunteers is this is not just a place for these families to come get clothes. They're coming to be loved on. They're coming to get supported. They're coming to feel a sense of community. They're coming to meet each other. They're coming to get help. I had one lady, a, a new pregnant Afghan refugee with her two kids that had called me a couple weeks ago saying she's in need. I said, come to the clothing closet to the Disciples Depot and I'll meet you there. And so I got to meet her in person, got to find out what her needs are and what I can help her with. Um, And so so the, the Disciples Depot was kind of born out of that one person that for Thanksgiving said, I'm sorry, I'd like to come to the party, but I have nothing to wear. And then just to see this great need in Ashland, you know, for the local Hispanic community in Ashland, a lot of them are just walking there. And um, we try to help as many as we can. Um, And, you know, a lot of them will let us know their needs. And then we also work with the YMCA has a social needs navigator for the Hispanic community. So we have him come so that he can also kind of help address their needs as well. And then for the refugee families, then I kind of find out what the Afghan refugee families, I kind of find out what they need. And we go from there. What's Um, What's the focus now? So right now we have our English class up and running. It's going really well. Um, Today we had a speaker come, which was great because I I did need a little bit of a break (laughs) from teaching and lesson planning. Um, And so the speaker came and talked about budgeting and paying bills because that is a big problem that has come up. That's a big problem for people that grew up here. So true. Absolutely. Absolutely. And... um, so that's well underway. And then for the English class families, we do um, minister to them, to them a lot and help them with a lot of different needs. So I would say I manage about 60 different family members right now with my entire team of volunteers. And there's so many different needs. Um, a lot of them came on humanitarian parole, so they needed to apply for asylum. And so... Uh, in- humanitarian parole, help me under think about that there's a limited amount of time you can be a refugee uh and there's a parole period where you have x amount of time to go 
Yeah, so you have humanitarian parole status for 18 months. Okay. That allows you the, the ability to work here. You get social security numbers. You get all that information. And um, then you have 18 months to apply for asylum, which says basically, like, I'm in fear of my life. I can't go back to my home country. And then you apply for asylum. When you apply for asylum, then you can apply for more um, permanent status, like a permanent resident, citizenship, and all of that. Um, so they all needed to apply for asylum, but for a family, of six it's six thousand dollars to do that so at first i was like well how am i going to fundraise for all these families <laughs> so then i was like okay let me co contact other organizations and see what everyone else is doing and i really got lucky i found a lawyer that was working for the u.s committee of refugees and immigration and she just got placed in Richmond. So I got her right at the beginning of when she was here. And so we took all our families there. And um, it was really, really amazing because it gave us the opportunity to kind of hear their stories without asking directly. Um, and so we found out so much cool information. Like the one guy that was had gotten a job doing laundry at a hotel he had been a hydroelectronic engineer for the united nations in afghanistan i was like blown away the other family he um owned a construction company and it was just like amazing and then it was but it was also very sad because he said the construction company worked for the was a contractor of the U united states like the u.s the u.s contracted with his company to build the security checkpoints mm. so when everything happened they killed a lot of his workers and blew up his company and so thank god he escaped with his family but uh, with his kids and um his wife but you know some of his other close family members were not that lucky at all so um you know, it was really, really hard to hear that that was like around November, December time, taking them to the lawyer. Um, those were some very, very hard days for me and a couple of the other volunteers that were doing that because, you know, the, they don't necessarily share their hard stories that and where they came from and what they had to go through to get here. You know, it's it's kind of like my parents, you know, every time they started talking about it, they'd get so choked up and mm. it was so hard. And just to talk about what you left behind, it was just easier for them to just pretend that never happened. And, you know, my life started when I entered into America yeah. and to go from there. But um, so so but we have been having it's been such an exciting journey because there's so many different opportunities to help and there's so many different things that we've been able to do. So um, so we did the lawyer, but then we also uh, one family, a family of eight, they needed jobs. So we, I got them some I did some job applications for them and I got them jobs. Well, I didn't realize like I'm getting a couple of them jobs here and a couple of jo jobs there. Well, they only have one car for all eight of them. And so how are all of them going to work at two different places? So I was like, okay, well, um, you guys will need a car then. And the car that they had would not even fit all eight of them. Mm. Because I invited them to lunch one time, and they only brought like two of the kids. And I was like, where's everyone else? And they're like, we only can fit like four in our car. And I was like, oh, well, this is a problem. So then we were able, the group of volunteers that I work with, I put it out there, and one of them found a minivan. Another one went and checked it out for me. Another one told me like, you know, help me with what the process is of like getting the title and insurance. And then we went and the Ashland Christian Church donated the funds 
to purchase the minivan for this family. It's awesome. And yeah, it's amazing because that's you that you have to give them a little bit of help to empower them to then help themselves. Right. Because now that they have a car, now the husband and wife both have jobs. Four of the kids have jobs. I mean, it's amazing. That's how they're going to survive. But they couldn't have done that if they didn't if they only had the one car that didn't fit all of them. And so um that was a huge success. One of the um, family members that we work with, she was in medical school in Afghanistan, and she was three months away from graduation. Yeah. She was in a seven-year program, and three months away from graduation, when Kabul fell, she had to escape. Her brother was working for security for um, Karzai, so they were all going to get killed. So they all escaped, and she's like, "I want to study again. I want to. I want to learn English. I want to study." So I got her enrolled in J. Sergeant Reynolds, and I actually don't mind filling out forms. Like it's one of my things that I like to put effort to, and. Well, I did in the past. Now I've filled out a lot of forms the past <laughs> few months. Maybe I don't like it so much. So I filled out the FAFSA like a couple of days before Christmas. Well, she filled out most of it. And then I helped with a couple of things. And then it just kept glitching. It wouldn't work. It said denied, denied, denied. It wouldn't go through. I'm like, I don't know how to fix this. And I'm like, God, I do not know anymore. I'm going to leave this. I got to enjoy Christmas with my family right now. I'll pick this up after Christmas miraculously i'm telling you i don't know how it happened but the fafsa got approved and accepted the day after christmas so i think what happened was one of the things that she had put wrong was her birth date and i had gone in and fixed it and when i fixed it it kept saying denied but i think i just didn't give enough time for them to process the new birthday and so like two days after Christmas, it got processed. She got the Pell Grant and she oh, got awesome. enrolled into uh, J. Sergeant Reynolds. So she's in English class now. But six and a half years of medical right. schooling and training. And then you have to go to J. Sergeant Reynolds to effectively start over? Or completely. she just learned? She's completely she starting to completely over. completely start over. So J. Sergeant Reynolds, she's got to do almost two years of English classes. Then I'm going to try to get her to VCU. And then I found someone at VCU that can look at some of the coursework that she did and see if it can transfer. But that's like another $200 fee, which, you know, I'm going to go to the church members to see if we can get that paid for. So that way we can um, pay that and then get her courses looked at and see what will transfer over. Because, you know, she was practicing in Afghanistan, like as a, you know, not as an intern, but like just as a medical student, she was able to do a lot. I mean, I've seen her certifications and all the paperwork and everything that she's done. It's amazing. And so, um, so yeah, so there's some potentials, so like some avenues that I've been able to find through some of the help with Reestablish Richmond. Um, they let me know about this course verification program that can do that um, and things like that. So right. well, let's, yeah. ba- let's back up. Sure. We're going to come back to this topic. Yes. But so you, you became a medical doctor. Lots of schooling. I've had I've had some yes. doctors on, on the podcast. Uh-huh. It's more education than I can fathom. I had zero desire to do anything after I graduated undergrad. Um, the, the staying power and the perseverance that doctors have to go through just to become a medical doctor mm-hmm. is staggering to me. Yeah. You went all, through all that, and as I mentioned earlier, being you're, you're basically a brain surgeon, right? Yes. You were trained to be a brain surgeon. Yeah. You were you were a brain surgeon mm-hmm. for. How many years? So I did my residency for four years. Uh, then I broke my arm. 
Oh, right after residency? No, in my residency. Oh, my so gosh. So I didn't even finish. It's a seven-year program for neurosurgery. Um, a lot of other specialties, pediatrics and internal medicine, are like three or four years. Had I done those, I would have been finished. But I wanted, I was like dead set on being a neurosurgeon. And so I was a neurosurgery resident for four amazing years that I got to help so many people and just be such a, um, you know, it's such an intimate time of somebody's life when they have be when they're diagnosed with like a brain tumor or when their kid is diagnosed with um, a brain tumor or uh, has a shunt and has shunt failure or when they're they have spinal disease or something. I mean, that's such a difficult part of life that these people go through, and to have the privilege to be part of that and help be part of the team that cares for that. I mean, that was just so amazing. It was so phenomenal. Like I, those four years of my life was so, were just beyond words could describe of how amazing it was to be able to help these people. Your story's and, kind of similar to uh, the lady who had six and a half years of medical training in Afghanistan. I mean, there are yeah. ob- obvious differences, but yeah. you were almost at the end. Exactly. And how, exactly. how did you break your arm? Well, one day I got off work early and the, the sun was out and so this was like unheard of i hadn't seen the sun in four years so then i was like what am i gonna do so i went to target i bought an exercise ball and then i started exercising and then i was like well i'm gonna pa- i'm gonna fast forward the video i fast forward the video and started doing like a sit-up on the ball not smart <laughs> the ball rolled and i fell completely on my arm oh yeah, so then I broke my arm, and then I was I had met my husband in my residency, and um, so we were about to get married, and I was the night float resident, so um, that meant I was the only neurosurgeon at in the hospital, um, and so I didn't want to take time off because to let my arm heal because then I would have to postpone our honeymoon and our wedding Mm. and all of that and everything would change. And so I said, okay, I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm just going to keep working. So I kept working with a cast, which is probably not a good idea. (laughs) And so then I ended up developing a lot of problems and a frozen shoulder and numbness in my thumb. And then it basically didn't heal properly. My hand was chronically swollen. And then I finally went to the doctor, um, and he said, look, I think you've really damaged your arm so much that you can't operate anymore. Wow. So well, that had to be crushing. To hear it that. was crushing. It was, well, I wouldn't say it was crushing. No, it was hard. Because again, at that time, I'm like, okay, this is hard. This is not the path I thought that was going to happen. It's, it was very upsetting because, you know, I had wanted to be a pediatric neurosurgeon all my life. And so it was very upsetting, but I was like, okay, there's a plan. God has a plan. I don't have to leave my country and go to another country where I don't speak a language and leave everybody I know. So again, the fact that my parents went through so much, it made like that setback not as big of a deal for me. You know, it was, it was a huge deal, but it was also like when you put it in perspective of what my parents had to go through to leave everybody they knew, to leave their country, to leave their, uh, you know, their home and their friends, family, everything. And to come to a country where they know nothing about, you know, okay, now I can't do the specialty that I trained in. What am I going to do? So then I just retrained in family medicine. <laughs> and so, so, yeah, that that perspective, um, I guess, has been really powerful for you your entire life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that, that, it definitely gives so much perspective. You know, when, you know, I tell my kids if they're grumbling about going to school, I'm like, 
people in Iran are protesting <laughs> to have the ability to walk freely in the streets. People in Pakistan are protesting for the people in Afghanistan that the girls aren't allowed to go to school. You know, so you better take the, I mean, Malala got shot in the face so that she could go to school. Yeah. I don't want to hear one more word that you don't want to go to school. <laughs> so, and, and they yeah. listen and they're like, yeah, you're right, mom. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> they're in middle school, so I don't know how much they say you're right, Mom. But but they go. They're thinking. They listen. They're probably yes. thinking it. Yes, I hope so. Hopefully I they're hope thinking so. it. Yeah. yeah. Because that's the only way. Like, they didn't see my parents working so hard. They do see me and my husband working so hard. So hopefully just seeing that will be ingrained in their mind. But they got. they have to know the stories. They have to know the stories of how much... My parents struggled and how hard it was when they came here. They have several of the refugee families have kids in their school. And I tell my boys all the time, I'm like, you need to look out for those kids. You need to look at the young girl that's in your class that's from Afghanistan that doesn't speak English very well. You need to think that's your mom in the past. That's your mom that somebody was picking on. Don't let anyone pick on her. Stand everybody should, everybody should have that mindset. Yeah. I, I wish I wish everyone did. I uh, I keep trying to get my kids to speak up about it because that's the thing. You, they have to speak up. You see something, say something. Yep. So it's so, so critical. I should and, have asked you this uh, towards the beginning. Did you grow up Christian? Um, so I wouldn't say no. I did not. I would say no, I did not grow up Christian. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of the people that came from Iran at the time of the Islamic Revolution uh, really felt like, well, I mean, I don't think I can speak for all of them. I can just speak from my perspective of what I saw was a lot of people were like, okay, we are Iranian and that's part of our culture, but the the Muslim part of our culture, you know, now they're, they've hijacked our religion. They've hijacked it and they've made it into something that's not. So... Um, you know, my my parents weren't very like um, they weren't adamant that we go to a mosque and and practice our religion. They also weren't um, saying, OK, let's go to a church all the time. But my mom was definitely adamant that we're celebrating Christmas okay. because Jesus is um, a prophet in the Muslim religion and like extremely important in the Christian religion. And it's extremely important for Americans, you know, and so. Um, it was really like so important for my mom that we celebrated Christmas. And so it was very interesting to me for the refugee families. I, I offered all of them. We had a couple extra Christmas trees that, uh, that we thought would be great for some of these families, but I knew a lot of them are Muslim. A lot of them are practicing Muslims. They go to the mosque in Henrico on Fridays and they pray and they also fast during the month of Ramadan. And so I, I just offered to them. I said, by the way, we have a Christmas tree. If you want it, you don't have to have it. It's not, um, you don't, you don't, like, we won't feel bad at the church. That's one of the biggest things we do at the church is say, we respect everybody, whatever religion they are, whatever country they're from, what, however they practice their religions. We are not here to convert anybody. We're not here to impress our religions upon anyone else, impress our beliefs upon everyone else. Everyone can believe what they believe. And that's a very tolerable 
um, aspect that we have from both Ashland Christian Church and First Baptist Church of Ashland. And um, it's how this country was founded. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So it was so amazing to me that so many of these families actually did want Christmas trees. So we got groups of volunteers to take Christmas trees to these families, and their kids were so excited. What's not to like the, about a Christmas exactly, tree? Exactly, exactly. And especially then when we put gifts under it for them, they were very happy. So, yeah, so it was really, I mean, it's really been amazing. There's a, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of casework that we do for these families in terms of helping kind of bridge because they don't speak English. We help make their doctor appointments. We help, um, when they get a bill, they don't understand when they have a bill from the collection agency, they don't understand Then I have to explain to them. Where was the original bill? Why did you ignore that? You need to start sending your bills to me if you don't understand it. Because, you know, they don't speak English, so they don't understand a lot of what comes. So a lot of them do get some food stamps because they don't have money to, to get food. And their food stamps keep getting cut off. That is probably... I would say here lately, the number one thing I deal with, like the pregnant lady from last week with the two kids that called me, her food stamps had got cut off two months ago. She's like, I don't know what to do. Why were they cut and off? So I found out because I called social services and then I had to have them like put me on as a authorized user and all of that. Once we got through all that, I found out in January, they all got sent a letter to say, do you still need food stamps, yes or no? Send the letter back. Well, the letter's in English. They had no idea what it said. They weren't sure. And a lot of them just put it in a file and hoped that sometime somebody would explain it to them or call them or whatever. They never sent it in. So then they didn't get renewed. So they lost their food stamps. And all of that process around mm -hmm. government interaction and, yes. and paying bills, I don't yes. think most Afghans experienced anything like that. No, yeah, exactly. Electricity, I'll tell you, electricity has been such a challenge. Their electric bills have been like four, five, six hundred dollars a month. Ridiculous. And I was like, what is going on? So then I go to their house and I say, okay, we have to figure this out. Well, the one family has baseboard heat. And then I was like, let me look through the whole house. So, And they're so gracious about letting them do that. Because, I mean, would you really let somebody just walk through your entire house to tell you what you're doing wrong with your electricity bill? But they were so kind to do that because they knew I was just trying to help them. Went through the house, went to the teenage boy's room. The door was closed. We opened the door. The window was wide open. Oh. I was like, why is this window wide open? And they're like, because the boys stink. And I was like, I get that. So she's like, when they go to school, I change the sheets, I fix their beds, and I clean up the room, and then I need to open it to get fresh air in there. I was like, look, you can't. I want you to picture money flying out the window because you have baseboard heat. The heat, the amount of uh, electricity is going to take to reheat the room to the right temperature once this window is closed after being open for hours is going to be astronomical. That's why your bill is five $600. She says, so what do I do? I said, I'm going to buy you a spray. <laughs> and it's um, it smells like fresh air. And she was like, what? I'm going to spray chemicals in the kids' rooms to spray to smell like fresh air? Teenage boys do stink pretty they badly. Do. Yeah. Oh, they do. They do. Um, but I was like, yeah, that's what we do here in America. We spray the chemicals that smell like fresh air. Chemicals in America can solve all kinds exactly, of things. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I told them, I said, you cannot open your windows until the Persian New Year. 
the Persian New Year was this past Monday. It's the first day of spring. So I said, that's the day. Well, then I told them all at class, still don't open your windows because today was a nice day, but it gets cold again. Yeah. So I said, I'll tell you when you can start opening your windows. But um, Simple things that, yes, that we take for granted. Completely. Yeah. Or like the, they went to the food bank and... Um, they got mac and cheese. Well, then they called me and they said, well, what is this? They sent a picture. I was like, okay. And it was like the cups of mac and cheese. So I was like, okay, you pour water and I put it in the microwave. It's going to be great. So then I went to their house a few days later and they're like, no, we just want to give these mac and cheese back. And I was like, what happened? And they're like, well, first our kid ate it and it was too crunchy. Then we called you and you said, pour water in it and put it in the microwave. So then they poured water in it and they put it in the microwave and they said it was way too soupy. We didn't understand it. And there was no cheese. I said, no, the cheese is this powder. And they're like, what? And I was like, yeah, no, no. This is what we do. <laughs> we take the powdered cheese. We mix it in the water, but you only fill the water to right here. And then she looked at me and she's like, that doesn't make any sense. I will just make them fresh noodles with fresh cheese. I was like, okay, I'll take these back. You know. <laughs> and then she tried to give me back a pack of Twizzlers. And I said, no, you keep this. This is good. Yes, and then right. she's like, no, what is it? Is it strawberries? She pointed on the picture. She's like, is it strawberries? And I was like, oh, no, no, no. It maybe kind of tastes like strawberries, but it's pretty much sugar. And she's like, so why would I give this to the kids? And I'm like, no, Twizzlers makes mouths happy. <laughs> like, they will love it. And, um, right. And so uh, she's like, that's not good for their teeth. And I was like, yeah, I know. But I was like, just keep it. So she kept it. I don't think she ever gave it to the kids because she was like, why am I going to just give them sugar? Which makes sense, but yeah. um, but it's been such a uh, such a blessing for all of us to get to know these families, and you know they're not just a refugee family to us anymore. They're our friends now. Yeah. You know, our volunteers go there, and um, you know they the families love to make our volunteers food, and they always they just always want people to stop by and be fed. And uh, so one of them had asked me um, a few weeks ago, like, you know, you had this great Thanksgiving party for us. You had this great Christmas party. When's the next party? And we're like, okay, I'll do it. We'll have a Persian New Year party. Okay. So this past Saturday, we did the Disciples Depot. We gave out the clothes. And then the volunteers and I got to work for Sunday. And we put together the, the like one of the most amazing Persian New Year parties that I've been to. We had all the families come. We had um, drivers volunteer to bring them. And they came with their kids. And, you know, at the English class, it's a Thursday morning, so we don't get to see a lot of their school-age kids. So it was really great to see a yeah. lot of their school-age kids. And then they brought tons of food. And we knew that they wanted to share their food and share their customers. But we also know they're on food stamps. So what we did, and you know, we kind of brainstormed. I, I asked one of the families I'm closer to, like, could I give you all money for the food that you bring? Or, I mean, I don't want to insult you. She said, no, don't give us money. So I was like, okay. So then I thought, like, why don't we just give them a 20-pound bag of rice from BJ's and then a nice tray with apples and oranges yeah. because then that's like food back to them but it's also like a gift yeah. and it's also like thanking them for bringing food for us to try and it's just so for me the a lot of the heartwarming part is to see our volunteers from both churches like getting to know each other getting to know the families and just all working together as a community it is one of the most beautiful things in the world and um it's so the best then, part of being a human yes exactly yeah. and so so we 
uh, we ate and then we put the music on <laughs> and then we danced and it was so amazing. I love dancing to Persian music. I danced to it in the car all the time. <laughs> and, um, but wow, the Afghan families, they all wore their traditional outfits and I had to leave the dance floor because they were so good. <laughs> I couldn't stand there. I was like, well, my Persian dancing isn't as good as yours. I'm going to stand here and watch. And they were amazing. And just the happiness and the joy that they could forget for a few hours that they're living in a hotel or that they can't make their rent this month or that they, you know, uh, have other struggles in their lives. They could forget that for a few hours and just be and just know that they're in a community filled with love and support and that we will all together help them address their needs you know, but during that moment, let's just dance. Let's literally dance our cares away as if no one's watching. Yeah, that's great. So they did say, like a lot of us were videotaping, and they did ask me to make an announcement. They said, "Don't post any of these for our safety." Right. So they couldn't really totally dance like no one's watching. But they, the kids especially, really, really enjoyed themselves. It was so beautiful to see. And rewarding for you and the, the other volunteers. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that's you know. That's the best part. I think a lot of the volunteers, the feedback that I've gotten is they said they wanted to do something to help. They didn't realize they would receive so much in return. Just the love from these families. And, you know, one of our volunteers said that, you know, life was just really tough for her. She was very lonely. But knowing that she was coming to the English class every mm -hmm. week and then these people were excited to see her, it just brought so much life oh, back great. to her. Yeah. So. How do people uh, help? So... Like, how would anybody that's not anybody already, that's, anybody yeah. that's listening, how could they help? Okay, that's a great question. Um, so we have an email address that people can email me. Um, it's fbca.esl at gmail.com. So First Baptist Church Ashland dot uh, English as a second language or um, English for speakers of other languages is now the more PC way to say it. Um, so fbca.esl. Um, at gmail.com and we also have a um, phone number that they could call they could call me at 804-496-1557 and then I can help them get plugged into whatever they're ready to help with then we can plug them in if they're with a church or neighborhood or community and they say you know we just want to help but just help a little bit right now then they can do a donation they can um for our disciples depot every month we have a new item that we give so um last month we gave like soaps and shampoos uh the month before toothbrush and toothpaste so this month coming up we're going to give some more like four packs of toilet paper and um diapers and wipes so community members church members um anybody on their own they can always um take up a collection and that's always very much appreciated um so and then if they want to get more involved they can email me and let me know other ways that they want to get involved if they want to make any donations they can um specify that they want to donate to the disciples depot um through ashland christian church and that'll go into our international ministry that we um the fund that we use for both churches and then we can help people that way um a lot of a lot of the families have finished their um, time of support with Commonwealth Catholic Charities or, or the IRC, so nobody's helping them with rent. Mm. Um, so that's a big thing that we're 
um, trying to figure out what's the best way to help. You know, I don't want to just pay rent for a month or two for some of these families because that's not a long-term solution. So, you know, for some of them, I've talked to them about, okay, I can give you $500 a month for six months and then it's going to end, but that'll at least kind of bridge you to get you a little bit of leeway so that maybe one of the kids can start working with you, you know, one of the older kids um, and then, or you can get a better paying job or something like that. Um, or your wife can start working. And, um, so we definitely, definitely need more people that are willing to give them jobs. Um, right now everybody basically has to work at Walmart because Walmart will take the non-English speakers very easily. So Mm. we can fill out a job application and they get a job. But, um, you know, anybody out there who, um, has, job opportunities, please email me. Um, Anyone out there who has housing, we have a phenomenal couple in Mechanicsville that was so kind to rent out one of their rentals to one of the refugee families. And, um, you know, sometimes there's challenges. There was December, they lost a lot of the food stamps and their um, uh, TANF, which is a social services thing. And their IRC support. So the family had a hard time coming up with money for December. Um, we were able to figure out a plan for them by December 31st. And I called the landlords and they're like, you know what? It's Christmas. We're going to give them December rent as a gift. Mm. They don't have to pay it this month, you know? And so that couple has been phenomenal. We definitely need more couples like them. Um, you know, they have also helped enroll some of the kids in a soccer club because the kids just want to play soccer. You know, they want to do something that makes them feel normal again um so and they, and they want to have fun absolutely yeah. absolutely car donations that's a huge thing if anybody wants to donate their car they can donate it to either first baptist church of ashland or ashland christian church and specify for the international ministry um, we definitely need we have a single mom that's in need of a car right now and um we definitely have other families in need of a car um, so there's there's a lot of different ways that people can help as little or as much as they're ready to. Cool. Let's uh, close by you telling me about your husband and your kids. Oh, okay. Um, so my husband's been so amazing about supporting what I'm doing. And um, I told him, I said, you know, my birthday's coming up. And so I think what I want for my birthday is could you just pay the rent for this one family in need? <laughs> So uh, he said we'll discuss it after your podcast. <laughs> so I'm hoping he's he's thought about that and that would be a yes. Um, and then my kids are great. They they know that the week of the Disciples Depot, that there's going to be lots of clothing donations from the neighbors and they're responsible for bringing it into the house. They're responsible for loading it into my car so that they can I can take it to church and help set it up and everything. Um, and then they they are good about knowing that you know, a lot of the kids, they just want to feel like normal kids. So I'm like, you know, come to the parties, come to the events and just interact with them, interact with them all so that they feel like they have friends. When you see them in school, say hi to them. You know, if they can't say hi back right away, they'll learn it. Hi, how are you? I mean, we just did that in our class a couple (laughs) of weeks ago. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thanks. How are you? And so, but the kids will pick it up quicker. So, I mean, I think it's, it's so heartwarming. Like one of 
even today, just to see the young people get involved, involved and excited, oh, it makes me so happy. So today, one of our neighbors was so gracious to donate a dining room table to the family that just, just moved out of the hotel mm. into an apartment, and they have no furniture. And so um, one of my volunteers is in college, and he was going to come pick it up. And I was like, well, that's around the same pickup time that I get my kids from school. I can't help you. I was like, can you get someone? So he got one of our high school youth students from the church to come and help him. And when I heard that, I was so excited. I was like, you know, you get the youth involved so that they can see what these families are going through. It makes them have that feeling of gratitude for what they have. And it also fosters that idea of let me help others because, you know, so many people have struggles that we just don't know about. Yeah. Well, very cool. How do you say uh, thank you in Farsi? Merci. Uh, it's French. Oh, yeah. The French took it from the Persians. <laughs> you just kind of blew my mind. Yeah. Um, ascensor is also French, but they took it from the Persians. It means escalator. <laughs> if you meet a Persian, you'll hear this phrase a lot. Oh, the Greeks took feta cheese from the Persians. <laughs> it all well, started with the Persians. Well, mer- merci for uh, joining us. I really do appreciate it. And your story is amazing uh thank and you. what you're doing for the community these days uh is equally as amazing so thank you so much thank you for doing this and uh, thank you for sharing the story well thank you so much for giving me the platform to share the story and and anyone out there that's listening you know if you just see someone from another country they don't speak the language you know just say hi yeah it means a and lot smile and smile it exactly. means a ton it does If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.